All right, John 12. We're going to reach back. We're going to actually grab a story that we looked at last week and a new one this week. I think both of these are supposed to be uh, read together. It's Jesus anointed by Mary and then Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Both of those things picture their, their picture of what kind of king Jesus is. Remember, the whole point of John's gospel is that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. Jesus' identity is core. And we see him in these two scenes trying to say, this is what kind of king that I... ...of context before we jump in. One, the Sanhedrin has decided to kill Jesus. The, Jew, the Jewish leadership has wanted to kill him for over a year, but they've made it official. This Sanhedrin is the highest ruling authority in Jerusalem, and they've said, officially, we want to kill him. Uh, Second thing, it's Passover. Passover is approaching, so you have a large crowd in Jerusalem, maybe 100,000 people, and they're all preparing for the Passover. Uh, They're wondering if Jesus is around. And the background for the Passover is Moses' deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. So you have this idea kind of, again, just kind of floating in the air. God delivers his people from oppression. He did it, you know, with our ancestor Moses. Mate, could he be doing it with Jesus? We're under oppression by this Roman government now. And then also Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe it was a couple of weeks, maybe it was a couple of months before. But that happened just two miles outside of Jerusalem. There was a crowd that saw him do it, and that crowd has been talking um, since Lazarus' resurrection They've been stirring up, um, stirring up other people for Jesus, talking about what he's done. Um, and again, because Lazarus is, is just right next door, he's just two miles away, that miracle can be verified. So all of those things are going on. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus, again, Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Someone is throwing a, a banquet or a feast in his honor. Maybe Lazarus is the guest of honor of well, as well. We don't know if it's Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house or someone else's house. But everyone is gathered, and at one of these fancy meals, uh, people recline. That's how you ate. You'll see a picture there up on the screen. And so Jesus' feet would have been extended behind him, easy to get to. And then Mary comes in and uh, put yourself in that room. So your next family gathering, like parents and everybody's there. And then somebody comes in and they have a a Coke can full of perfume and they get on the floor and they dump that perfume on your feet. And then they start to rub your feet with their head. That's a showstopper. (laughs) And that's what Mary does. I'm imagining forks are falling out of people's hands and mouths are dropping open. Nobody's talking. They're just watching her. Just watching her. She doesn't go get a towel. She doesn't use part of her dress. Dumps uh, uh, perfume uh, worth a year's salary, 300 denarii. 
Think about that in your own context. How long would it take you to save up a year's salary? And then she pours that on Jesus' feet and starts rubbing his feet with her hair. She's not trying to dry his feet. Hair's not absorbent like that. I think they say smell is the sense most closely to tied most closely tied to memory, and so maybe this is pre-shower days. You wash your hands more often than you wash your hair, maybe. Maybe if you have long hair, too, like Mary did. So maybe she's using her hair because she wants it to smell like perfume, because she wants to remember. Maybe that's what's... I don't know. But that's what she does, and then, again, put yourself in... That's happening around your dinner table. Somebody's going to break the tension... Somebody's going to say something. This time it's Judas, and he criticizes her. That's a waste. You should have sold that jar of perfume and given it to the poor. And then Jesus defends Mary and affirms what she did. You've got other resources you can use for the poor. This was saved for me. This perfume was set aside just for me. It was intended to prepare me for burial. Mary didn't know any of that. But that's how Jesus interprets this action. She's been saving this for just this moment. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. He's probably a local celebrity, I would imagine. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, so this is Sunday, on our calendar it would be Palm Sunday, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The crowd took palm branches and went out to meet Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it's written, don't be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this, only after Jesus was glorified, Do they realize that these things have been written about him and that these things have been done to him? Now the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that Jesus had performed this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, went out to meet Jesus. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So now it's Sunday... Remember, you've got a large crowd in Jerusalem, maybe 100,000 people, and they're all getting ready for Passover. They're all doing, jumping through the hoops to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean so they can participate in this festival. The end of chapter 11, we see people are buzzing about Jesus. Is he going to come? Is he going to say anything? Is he going to appear at the temple? And you also have this word that the Sanhedrin has said, if anybody sees him, you've got to let us know because we, we, we want to arrest him. So that's what's going on, and he's just two miles away, and he starts walking towards Jerusalem, and a crowd goes out to meet him, and they cut down palm branches, and they go and they start waving those palm branches. That would be like us waving American flags. It's a national symbol, and they start using and and quoting this Psalm 118. It's, it's It's a royal psalm. It's a military psalm. It was used after a king won a great victory and is coming back into the city. And so they're quoting and chanting and shouting from this psalm, Hosanna, which means save us or maybe even save us now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. They're using that language. 
of Israel. So you have all of this going on. It's, it's feeling like the 4th of July. You've got people are waving the flags and they're quoting the psalm and they're saying Jesus is the king and underneath all of it is God delivered our ancestors through Moses. Maybe he's gonna deliver us through Jesus. He raised someone from the dead. Moses never did that. And the guy's sitting right here. We know that he did this. And so you have all of that excitement and maybe even tension and, and anticipation And what does Jesus do? He gets on a donkey. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it reads a little different. But in John, it sounds like Jesus sees all of this happening. And his response to all of the hoopla is to get on a donkey and ride it into Jerusalem. He's walked over 3,000 miles in his life. He's not tired. It's a two-mile walk. It's intentional. He's intentionally calling to mind a prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, about the king of Israel, this future king, the Messiah. And in Zechariah 9.9, the Messiah and this future king is pictured as someone who's humble or lowly, someone who's gentle. And so you have the, this, this, this tension or the, the, the competing expectations for what it means. Jesus is not saying, I'm not going to be a king. He just says, I'm not necessarily the kind of king that you think I am. I'm not riding in on a war horse. I'm waddling in on a donkey. You're proclaiming victory. I'm coming to die. He's already been anointed for his burial. And he comes in gentle and humble. Nobody understands it. The disciples don't even get it till after Jesus dies. They probably don't even, in the midst of all of that, who's going to recall an obscure verse from Zechariah? Probably nobody, particularly his 12 disciples. They weren't trained, and so they probably didn't even come to their mind. They're just wanting, maybe they're curious, like, why, why is he doing that? And then you have the crowd that was with him, with Mary and Martha, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and they're continuing to spread the news and get everybody excited and hyped up, and the Pharisees are living their worst nightmare. They're going, this, this is the thing that we said couldn't happen. He's coming here during this week when there's all of these extra people in town. Everybody is thinking back to a previous deliverance with our ancestors, and they're now applying that to Jesus. We've got Lazarus who's here, who is proof that he's raised someone from the dead. People are calling him king. We can't have this. This is, the, this is our nightmare scenario. He, he's lit the fuse, and all of this is going to blow up. That's what the Pharisees are thinking, and we'll see how that plays out for them next week. We're going to take communion, and I want you to take communion from the posture of recognizing you have this king, Jesus he does two things that are royal in both of those scenes. One is he's anointed, and the other is he, he rides in as a king, a, a conquering king. But there's a twist in both of those things. If you go back and read the Old Testament, Samuel anoints Saul, and then Samuel anoints David, first and second kings of Israel, and then Nathan anoints Solomon, the third king of Israel. Jesus is anointed too by Mary. Those guys are anointed before they take office and Jesus is anointed before he does. Their heads are anointed, Jesus' feet are anointed, but he understands his anointing to be for his burial. They don't. 
And when those guys are, are victorious, David is Psalm 118. That's who, who that psalm is about. When he's riding back in, he's not riding a donkey. He's riding a war horse. And Jesus intentionally picks a different animal that speaks to humility and gentleness. He's a king, but he's a king who wins by dying. That's a cliche for us. I you to think about that. You serve a king who wins by losing, who wins by giving his own life in exchange for ours. We live in a society, and this is, I don't know that this is, is good or bad, but for us, we equate maturity with independence and self-sufficiency. And as we mature, we grow, we become more independent, and we become more self-sufficient. It's okay, but it's just not kingdom. If you read through the New Testament in particular, there's no indication that at some point God desires for us, he does desire for us to mature, but that he equates maturity with independence from him or self-sufficiency. That somehow we get to a point where we don't need to rely on him any longer. But for many of us, that's what we think. We get to a point and we say, I'm good. Other people need God, or other people need grace more than me. And we do that with this kind of, maybe this odd sense of humility as if grace is a limited resource. And so if God gives it to me, then he's not giving it to Michelle and she may need it more than me. So I'm just gonna say I'm okay. If that's how you're thinking, you're wrong. You're wrong. What God is looking for from us is ongoing dependence. There's never a point where we graduate from being sons or daughters of God. And so as you think about this king who died for you, who wins by giving his life away, and as you take communion, which reminds you of his death, this is the backdrop I want you to have. This is Psalm 103. These are the, the, this is the passage we've been using during Lent to help focus our prayer. The benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection, there are four categories there, four buckets, four different types of grace. And so I want you thinking about which one of those am I most in need of? Where right now do I most need God's grace? And if your answer is nowhere, then again, you're, you're wrong. You're wrong. God doesn't front load grace to us. He doesn't give us everything we need at the beginning and say, this will get you through. His grace for us is daily. Remember that story, that picture from the Old Testament after Moses has delivered the Israelites. After they've crossed the Red Sea, they're living in the wilderness, and God provides for them manna to eat. And he provides that for them every day. If you try to get two days worth, if you try to get Monday and Tuesday's manna on Monday, when you wake up on Tuesday, the manna that you had left over is full of maggots and worms. God won't allow it. One day at a time, that's what he says. You have to trust me every night when you go to bed that there's going to be this food on the ground when you wake up. Can you imagine that? That's what you have to do. How hard would that be? That's what he's wanting from us, that daily dependence upon him. So where, this morning, are you most in need of his grace? You have a king, absolutely. You have a king who died for you. His victory was won through his death. And his death brings about all of these benefits into your life and into my life. He forgives us of all of our sins. You know that. Many of you are I prayed a prayer at some point in your life. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I recognize I'm a sinner and I want to trust in you and 
your forgiveness, your grace in my life. And that's wonderful. But when many of us think about forgiveness, we think of an eraser. If you ever try to erase something on a sheet of paper, there's always a faint outline. And so even though we know we've been forgiven, we live with the lingering sense of guilt and shame. Jesus forgives all of our sins, and you can think of that not just in terms of he forgives every sin that we commit, but he forgives our sins all the way. In Isaiah, we read that God blots out our sins. Think of whiteout. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. There's no outline anymore. Do you live that way? Or do you need to experience the fullness of his forgiveness for you this morning? He heals us of our diseases, something that we've been talking about a lot recently. He heals our bodies. Are you sick on any level? Jesus heals supernaturally, miraculously, instantaneously. Sometimes he heals naturally, we would say, over time through medicine. Sometimes he doesn't heal until death, but he gives grace that's sufficient to live with whatever that condition is. If you're sick, you can ask him for grace today. Is that your point of greatest need? He redeems our lives from the pit. He crowns us with love and compassion. The idea of redemption is to rescue someone who's in bondage. Are you in bondage in some place this morning? You don't necessarily have to think about addictive behaviors. That for sure is a, that, that, that would be one possibility. Some people are in bondage to unforgiveness. We become bitter people. We're in bondage to bitterness because we don't forgive. Some of us live in bondage to fear and anxiety about the future, the unknowns. Bondage can be just as much mental as physical. Are you in slavery? Are you enslaved today? And what Jesus says is, I'll, I'll, you can make a trade. Rather than living under the, those chains, I'll bestow upon you love, a commitment to do what's best for you. Covenant faithfulness is what that word means. Or that's all rooted in a deep sense of empathy and sympathy for your weaknesses. I understand. Hebrews 4, we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. That last one's kind of a big, broad category. It's kind of hard to get your mind around. He, he, he fulfills our desires for good things and strengthens us like an eagle. Maybe you can think about if you were an ancient and you looked up and you saw an eagle and it doesn't seem to work very hard. They just eagle and the way they fly is a, an image or a picture of strength and of peace, of being renewed and restored. Maybe you're just tired and worn down, and that's the place where you most need grace this morning. I don't know where that is for you, but communion reminds you that that grace is available and reminds me that that grace is available. We serve a king. We serve a king who died in our place, and he said, we'll trade. You trade your sin and the punishment that's due you for sinning for my righteousness and the rewards that are due me for my righteousness. So if you're ready to make that trade, and here's a place where you can do that. So here's what we're going to ask you to do. Come forward a row at a time, and you'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. This is gluten-free communion. It'll remain here on this table. We'll have prayer teams, and I want you to get prayer this morning. If there's, the teams are full, there's plenty of chairs. You just sit down and wait for those teams to come up. We've got plenty of time this morning for everybody to receive prayer. You don't have to dive into all the details. You can just say, I'm struggling with forgiveness or, you know, I've got a bad back, whatever that is, and they'll 
They'll pray for you. you don't, again, you don't have to share all the gory details with them. But it's an opportunity, again, for you to receive grace. And grace comes to us through many ways. It's kind of weird, but grace can come to us through something like a ritual or an act like communion. Something that for many of us can be rote, but it also can be a way that God's grace comes into our heart. And having people pray for you, that's another way that God's grace can come into your life. And so we want you to take advantage of both of those things. So if you would, close your eyes, please. If you're helping with communion or ministry, if you come forward, that'd be great. It'd be great if we had a couple of teams on each side. So even if it's not your week, if, we, if you'd be willing to, to help, just so people don't have to wait too long. So here's the question I want you to ask the Lord if you're willing. God, would you show me where I am most in need of your grace right now? Would you ask him that? I want to acknowledge my dependence upon you now as a son or a daughter. And would you show me where I'm most in need of your grace this morning? So hold on to whatever came into your head, and you can pray this or something like this in your heart if you're willing to do so. Father, I thank you for sending your son. I thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection, and I acknowledge that Jesus is the king. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of my life. He's a unique king. He's the king who came to die so that I don't have to. And I'm thankful for all of the benefits that are available to me because of his self-giving love. Because he chose to die in my place, I can receive the benefits of his obedience. I pray, Father, as I come forward and take communion, would not just be a physical act for me. That you would work in my heart and in my life. Just like you didn't withhold your only son. You're not going to withhold forgiving grace. Or healing grace. Or redeeming grace. Or sustaining grace from me. I don't want to live independent of you in that area. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. I don't want to live independent of you in that area of my life any longer. I want to receive what you have for me this morning. So as I walk forward for communion for the 100th time in my life, I pray that you would stir faith in my heart to believe you to meet me. In Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, I pray for each man and woman in this room and that you would apply to each one of us the benefits of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that you would make those things that Jesus purchased for us real and active by faith in our lives today.